you you can tweet it from your This is David Thornton. I'm the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and we're continuing this series on shining the light on anti-Semitism. Um, we've been focusing on new partners in fighting anti-Semitism, and particularly fighting the kind of anti-Semitism that we see emerging from the progressive left. We know anti-Semitism also exists um, plentiful and on the right, but we're focusing on this kind of anti-Semitism that we're seeing emerge from a critical social justice discourse. And um, we're really delighted to have with us some um, two really great thinkers and activists on these issues. Um, we were also supposed to have with us Monica Osborne, Dr. Monica Osborne, who's a who has written extensively on, on these topics. She's fabulous, but she unfortunately is under the weather and cannot join us for this. So we'll have to bring her back on a future live stream. Um, so today with us, I have uh, Professor Sam Abrams. Um, Sam is a professor at um, Sarah Lawrence College. He's written extensively on these issues. He's a, a very um, experienced and prolific political scientist. And uh, Sam will talk a little bit more about what his own views on this and, and how he's come to these issues. Um, Blake Flayton is uh, the founder of the New Zionist Congress. He was really one of the premier Israel activists in the, the US. He's written for numerous publications, including the New York Times. And he's also um, an editor at uh, the Jewish Journal, which uh, we're very close to. So um, thank you both for being with us. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So, um, Blake, we started talking about this, uh, you know, even before we went live. Um, we're, you, you've thought a lot about this issue of sort of left-wing anti-Semitism and where it comes from and what some of the dilemmas are. Why don't you get us started? How do you define this current issue, this current problem? Well, that's, well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here back at JILV. Um, always excited to do panels to discuss these very important topics um, with you, David, and with um, the others who are on the call. Um, so that's a very broad question. Um, but what I will say is that I like to say that anti-Semitism or the left-wing anti-Semitism that we are experiencing in the culture right now and that we are discussing today um, comes as a consequence um, to illiberal ideologies. It is not the other way around. So it is not, you know, anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish prejudice that creates a system in which, in which, uh, you know, anti-liberal, illiberal ideology are espoused um, in the public square. It is the opposite. 
um, because as a society turns more toward um, totalitarian thinking away from liberty, um, the Jews will always be, the Jews will always find themselves on the other end of the pointing finger, um, finding themselves as a, a pinpoint of blame for why things are going wrong. Um, so I would define it as um, a, a ideology, a worldview, and this has been said a bunch of times um, by uh, many thinkers across the spectrum, um, that separates in the separates the world into oppressor and oppressed categories. Um, it is a hyper fixation, a hyper focus on issues of identity and marginalization and oppression and power structures. And when identity politics becomes the only politics. And when people are making decisions about um, how issues are decided um, politically, um, just based on immutable characteristics, the Jews find themselves unable to conform um, to one side or the other because our experiences are very nuanced and they're in the gray area. Many of us appear white and yet we are attacked by white supremacists, the same white supremacists that attack viciously people of color in this country. Um, we are a minority. Um, we have a story of Im immigration and tenement homes and economic uh, immobility for a while. And yet we are very successful and, you know, very represented in important categories uh, professionally. Um, and so we don't fit easily into the binary. And what that does is create a very profound frustration as to where to place and even where to treat Jewish people. Um, and the same can be said, uh, a lot of the same things can be said for the Asian American community. So I think the, the animosity that we are experiencing right now comes from that frustration into being unable to fit the Jewish people uh, a square peg into that round hole. Mm. Thank you. Sam. What are your thoughts? So first, uh, I want to echo Blake's sentiments and say thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I think uh, what JLV is trying to do is hugely uh, important. And uh, thank you for, uh, I, I hate to say fighting this fight. I don't like the idea of fighting this fight, but we need to have voice. Uh, because if we don't have voice, the Jewish community will disappear. Uh, so I want to actually echo uh, Blake's sentiments and then just expand on them very briefly. I, I think. Uh, Blake is absolutely right. One of the greatest uh, tragedies that we're dealing with in the social political sphere is the rise of identity politics uh, and uh, what some people refer to as intersectionality. We are all, every individual in this country, every person is, you know, the creation of numerous intersecting identities, uh, you know, whether it's sexual identities, whether it's racial identities, ethnic identities, uh, religious identities, gender identities, and so on. Uh, there's nothing, you know, particularly new about that. The problem is, is that rather than trying to find common ground and find ideologies that bring people together, rather than striving to come up with values that can unite us, uh, the dialogue has moved into fracturing based on these various identities and what I call the logic of harm. Uh, people around the country are saying, well, I fit into this group, so I've been harmed this way. I fit into that group, so I've been harmed this way. And Blake's absolutely right. There's this amazing schema. You can Google it where you can look at privileged and oppressed. And if you're on the privileged side, you know, it's about power. Uh, if you're on the privileged side, uh, you know, you can be punched at. You can be attacked. And there's no consequence. Whatever tactics are necessary to punch up is fine. Any action from top down is considered a form of abuse, oppression, and so on. That that's um, a real problem. Um, it's 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 an immature way of, of of running a society as well. We can't prosper if we fracture. We can't prosper if everyone in the room lives his or her or their whatever own truth. 
And that truth is, well, I'm X, Y, and Z, so this is my world. There are other truths that have to be bigger and greater than, than the whole. Judaism certainly teaches us that as well. But if we want to step back for a second, and, and I agree you know, with, with what Blake is saying, because I think it's true, and, and that's just some additional color. The, the question for me is, why or how have we gotten here? Why has this become so pronounced? And that's uh, a function of what's happened to our political system in the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, when I was growing up and born in the 1980s, and I feel very old saying that, my, my students, uh, you know, the, the cultural references I bring in about the Simpsons are just go over everybody's head when I try to talk about them with my students today. But when I was growing up, uh, it was the, the era of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And you could you know, have certain views that wouldn't fit today. You could be a Republican, but you could be very pro-immigration. You could be very pro-choice. You could be uh, very anti-gun. It doesn't matter what it is, but you know, you could say you're a Republican, you have a certain set of beliefs, but they wouldn't necessarily match up whatsoever. Uh, by the uh, Republican revolution in the 1990s and Newt Gingrich, our politics went from sort of looking like this, where there's a lot of overlap to moving apart. And now, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I can basically say, okay, if you're a Republican, you're going to believe this, 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 and this. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to believe this, 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 and this. And that's what we call sorting, the idea that uh, you no longer have a middle uh, where you could pick what you're comfortable with based on your own needs, where you're situated, your own circumstances, but there's one set of beliefs and the other. The result of this is balkanization and polarization of ideologies and attitudes. And the Democratic Party in particular, the progressive wing, has taken up identity politics as its sort of um, rallying cry. And uh, lumped into that, unfortunately, is the Jewish community. So a group that in theory should be open and welcoming is, is none of those things. Uh, you know, I, I sort of uh, love the, the, the stories where you can choose any color car as long as it's black, if you're Henry Ford selling a Model T. Or the Lin-Manuel Miranda idea that love is love is love, everyone's welcome, but you better believe in these five things. And if you differ, there's no more love. Um, the identity politic worldview has taken over the left. Um, it's made it very hard to be coherent, but one of the insidious ideas that's sort of snuck in there is anti-Semitism, anti-Israel, and um, you know this, this belief that anything Jewish, anything Israeli is part of some form of uh, power structure, misogyny, and so on that has to be torn down. And uh, we are in this very, very tough spot today. Mm, thank you. So I want to um, ask you a bit about how this impacts us in the Jewish community. I had um, a colleague talk about how her son um, went through a Jewish day school education and later became a pro-Israel activist on campus. In fact, went to the same school you did, Blake, probably overlapped with you some of the time. And her fears that had her son been subjected to sort of a critical race ideology program in high school, as maybe kids are getting now, that that would have sort of fundamentally undermined their his wherewithal to be that activist, to speak proudly about himself, that we're internalizing a lot of this, and it's internalizing it and not a way that helps equip us to deal with anti-Semitism, to equip us to deal with the challenges of the time. Um, Blake, do you have any thoughts on on that and how that's affecting Jewish identity and 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 Jewish pride well what I can say specifically about CRT and and this goes back to what I was saying in, in my first answer into that division of categories in society based on your immutable characteristics um, whether you're privileged or oppressed um, critical race theory um, 
and and the application of it in an academic setting designates certain things, certain attributes to be evil, right? To be bad, to be an impediment to progress in the world. Um, those things are power, whiteness, um, success, um, you know, any sort of like, like what uh, Sam was saying, any sort of colonialism, racism, misogyny, all of those things that we know as forward thinking people are bad. Um, but CRT um, assigns those attributes to groups of people and to collective groups instead of the individual itself. So when Jews are exposed to discussions about Israel that label the nation state of the Jewish people with all of these words, we of course become very uncomfortable because our experiences are being flattened into just white people because the majority of us, at least on American college campuses, look like white people. So therefore our experiences just becomes flattened into the American majority experience um, and our indigenous homeland becomes a bastion of colonialism, et cetera, and with no real legitimacy to be among the nations of the Middle East. So all of these kind of factors make uh, the environment very hostile to us. Um, another thing about CRT is that it, it sort of dilutes our own contribution to the discussion. Um, it makes our personal story, um, our experiences on this planet of going from either the Middle East or Europe sort of invaluable because we are not seen as a legitimately marginalized minority in this country because there's so much emphasis on power and power dynamics. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because some some in the Jewish community, I know, David, you've talked about this before, some in the Jewish community would argue that we need to be included in that conversation, that we need to be portrayed as marginalized, as victims. And if we do that, ipso facto, the anti-Semitism that we are seeing from the left will go away, right? Because we will be kind of, our image and our story will be one a part of this ideology. Um, but what we've seen time and time again is that doesn't work. Um, and I've I'll talk about this again. It's because our story does not fit because there are all these contradictions um, happening into our own identity right now. Um, so I don't see it as a winning solution to try to include Jews within a critical social justice framework um, because a critical social justice framework was literally designed to exclude us um, from those conversations. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, I, I worry about Jewish students who are entering high school or college now who might have a strong Jewish identity and a strong attachment to Israel. And then they hear these arguments being espoused and this worldview being propagated. And the majority of them just tap out. Um, and I can't necessarily blame them because it's a very complicated issue and it's an uphill battle, especially when you're facing um, institutions uh, and I mean our universities by institutions that are sort of overwhelmed with this ideology, that it's 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 a definitely an uphill battle to make a statement about it or to go against the, the common consensus. Um, so I don't blame them, but they just tap out because why would I even bother trying to assert what I know to be true when there are all these voices um, who are overpowering me at the moment? Sam, I do want to actually get into the territory of strategy in a minute about some of the dilemmas in strategy but let's let's start with this idea of jewish pride and identity what is your sense sam uh it's tough it's tough we have it but to to echo uh the earlier point here um 
And I don't like the term CRT because most of this is not CRT. CRT is is, is a academic construct, which is actually quite legitimate. Um, it, it's a sort of an extension of CRT. Um, as someone who is a real believer in viewpoint diversity, um, multiple ways of seeing the world should be should be discussed. CRT is one of them. I just don't think it's a very good one. Uh, the reason I don't think it's a particularly good one is it 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 basically is a dichotomy. You're either you know good or bad. There's no gray area. Life is full of gray, as I said before. Um, it also promotes the notion of victimization. And if you're constantly being a victim, that's really very, very hard to climb out of that mindset. Um, and it actually promotes infantilization. So rather than having individual agency, individual control, uh, and a chance to actually engage in upward mobility, you internalize these ideas that you've been wrong, you've been harmed, you're hurt, someone has to pay. This is not how to move forward. This is not how to create coalitions. Uh, and, and so on. So I think it's, it's, it's a problem. Um, in terms of, you know, what do we, so just to be clear, you want my sense of what students are supposed to do about this when they get to college? Well, or, or how does, how, what, do you have concerns about how this actually affects young people? I mean, you're, you're a professor and you, yeah, of course it affects young people in a very, very dangerous way. This is why I've spent the last five years of my career fighting it back. This is why I work with AEN. This is why I work with Heterodox Academy and, and, and so on. And that is, is that students come to college, most of them, even to this day, very excited. They, they want to learn. They realize the world is complex. That's the thing. I, I've run probably two dozen surveys at this point uh, on our college uh, and university students. Uh, and what's really spectacular about our Gen Z students, that's the ones who are currently in college. One common misconception is to say that students in college are, today are millennials. They are not. Millennials have children. Millennials are in their 30s. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a different. Please do not group call of, me a millennial. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, and, and some are and some are not. But but the the reality is is millennials tend to be older. Gen Zers are on college campuses today, and Gen Zers grew up in a hyperpolarized environment. They grew up in a stream of endless media coming at them. And one of the neat things that that you you learn from both the surveys and just me spending countless hours with them is is that they are not dumb. They know there is something wrong. It is offensive to me as a teacher, and I think it's offensive to them. And Blake, I'm not trying to talk down to you so, or put words into your mouth, but it is offensive to assume that these students, uh, you know, see the world in terms of black and white or red and blue, and we use purple instead. Uh, they don't. They understand that life, that life is complex. They understand that identity is far more complicated. I cannot tell you how many times I will have seminars and there'll be a group of students say, well, as a black guy or as someone who is gay, you should feel this way. And, it, and it, it, it warms my heart when the student who might fit into that category says, just because I'm gay, just because I'm black, that doesn't mean I feel this way. It doesn't mean I think this way. Stop labeling me. So, you know, the, the reality is our students want to come in. They are actually open-minded. Uh, a survey I just uh, conducted with uh, my colleague, Jeremy Sorry, he's a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, and I, and I, I mentioned him because not only is he a fantastic uh, thinker, scholar, and teacher, but he's pretty left of center on most things. I'm more right of center on most things. But we like to work together because if we both see something in the middle that's true, we like to say, this is the truth that we understand based on the empirics. Um, college students come in being open-minded. They are overwhelmingly independent. They are not overwhelmingly Democrats. They're not overwhelmingly Republicans. They voted heavily to take Trump down, take him out of office, but they do not like the current administration whatsoever. Uh, only 10% of uh, college students today report that they think the Republican Party is taking the country in the right direction. 18% believe that the Democratic Party is, is, is taking the country in the right direction, more than the GOP, but we're talking about 10 and 18%. These are small numbers. There are huge numbers of people who are just fed up with all of it. So you get to college 
and you suddenly are told, here's what to think, here's how to think, here are the very, here's the very language you can use. Brandeis has been in the news for this, uh, and the students don't like it. The problem is the overwhelming uh, dominance of liberal faculty and more importantly, liberal uh, administrators who live in dormitories now, who lurk in dining halls and student centers, who basically wield incredible power and are basically the thought police. They're omnipresent. They tell our students what to think, how to think, how to engage. And if someone's even remotely hurt, they swoop in. I think back uh, the, to the ancient days of my college experience in, in the 1990s. We didn't have cell phones. We couldn't, the same way, we couldn't record everything. And there were evenings I would have huge fights over various things. I was a Jewish boy in very secular Northern California. It did not go that well uh, many evenings. Um, I struggled with that and I'm gr very grateful for it. I learned a lot. Some nights I went to bed happy. Some nights I went to bed angry and that's growth. That was individual growth. That was forcing me to reconceptualize my prejudices. It was forcing me to, to rethink the world. And I'm very, very grateful that I had that experience. No one told me what to think. I worked with my, my, my peers, we, we figured it out. And today, 20 years later, even longer than that, I consider them lifelong friends. This is being lost on our college and university campuses. And uh, if you are pro-Israel, um, you know, you're being shunned into silence. You're afraid to speak. This has to stop. And I know that we're trying to do quite a bit of that uh, at places like the Heterodox Academy, JLIV is trying to do it. And we need to begin to empower students to speak up. I'd like to knock down the administrators. I'm trying to do that. That's going to take a long time. I hate to put the burden on folks like Blake, but it's going to be the students who realize that there's something wrong, who want more. They're going to be the ones who are going to demand more and push this forward. It's not going to be me as much as I'd like to help do it. My, my professor colleagues are too fearful to do it. The administrators are too entrenched to do it. It's going to be the students. So Blake, um, you know, your New York Times piece was phenomenal. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for doing it. And you know, my job is to do whatever I can do to help you, uh, to backstop you, to give you the resources, and to basically give as many peers and colleagues and people who want to speak up, whether it's about Israel or quite frankly, anything, uh, the right and the space to do that. Mm. So Blake, you have uh, what sometimes people call lived experience. You you just graduated college. I know we love that term here, right? But, <laughs> but it, gives some, it gives you some street cred. It gives you some street cred, right? And, and, and so I'm just wondering for a second if, if you agree with Sam that based on your own interaction with people on campus and, and you're still sort of operating in the campus scene, even if you've graduated, what do you do? You, do you agree that that, that that in the real world, there's actually a ton of intellectual diversity and, and openness and that um, and that if we're not really experiencing the kind of shutdown that we might think if we just listen to university administrators? Well, so I have a little bit of a different experience, and I think that has a lot to do with the school that I went to, which was GW. Um, we were just a couple blocks away from the White House. My freshman dorm room was literally a block away from the White House. And a lot of the kids who enter GW as freshmen are very politically charged and are looking to start an argument and are looking to get involved in work that puts them ahead in politics. I worked on the Hill my sophomore year. I wanted more than anything my freshman year to have an internship. That's, that's very much the mindset. And also the campus, the student body is very activated. We're very activist-centered there's always a protest happening. There's always a demand happening an administration to do something about whatever issue. So I do think that GW and maybe some other schools um, 
definitely it's it's lopsided like i go to i talk to my friends i'm from arizona originally and i talk to my friends who go to asu and u of a and i'm like when i was in school i i would you know tell them about all the drama that was happening and all the different scandals that were going on um, in regards to the politics of school. And they were like, yeah, we just go to parties on Friday and Saturday nights and we don't really have to deal with any of this. And I was like, I wonder if I, <laughs> I wonder if I should have taken that route instead. Um, so I think it is different on different campuses, of course. Um, and, and I think to, to, to a normal school, I, I would agree that there, there is a, a, a diversity of, of opinion and diversity of political ideology, or at least I would hope so. Um, but I would say that that, I would agree also that that diversity is being incredibly drowned out and washed out by a handful of the loudest people in the room who are portraying the collegiate experience as something, or who are fashioning the collegiate experience to be something incredibly uh, left wing. And when, when Sam mentioned, you know, only 18%, you know, believe the Democratic Party is taking the country in the right direction. I would argue that that number is so low, not because students are necessarily anti-Democrats or they're more center or right wing, but rather they're much farther to the left of Democrats. There's a very Bernie Sanders type idea that the Democrats have failed us. They're overrun by corporate money. And therefore we have to just blow up the two party system and, you know, install some form of democratic socialism. At least that was the ideology that I myself encountered. Um, and, and I think what's happening is that the loudest voices in the room that I mentioned who are fashioning the college experience and who, as Sam mentioned, have incredible power, you know, in shaping the student experience. Um, what they're doing is they are graduating um, into the most important institutions. They are graduating into journalism, into media, into politics, into law. These are the students who are getting into top grad schools and writing PhDs on absolutely insane subjects that Peter Bogosian could make fun of, you know, forever in, in his new book. Um, it's just, and, and, and so, I mean, Andrew Sullivan once said, we all live on campus now. And I think that's essentially true. Mm -hmm. The people who are towing the line the most and who are pushing this ideology the farthest are the ones who are being most celebrated by our cultural elites right now. Um, and we can go into, you know, a whole discussion on why our cultural elites love this ideology so much. Uh, Bhatia Ungar Sargon just wrote a book about it. Um, but and, and so their voices are being propagated above all others. Um, and so all other diversity of opinion is being just intentionally washed out. Um, it, it's, it's sort of like this pipeline, like, you know, my, we used to say when I was like in college that like, oh, we don't like frat boys because frat boys just go to business school and they hire other frat boys. And that's why, you know, all of like uh, uh, the financial district in New York is, is, is full of brads and jakes and stuff. Well, now it's, woke people graduate from school and hire other woke people. And it, the, the influence that they have on our culture is very, very, very profound. I speak to my grandparents um, who, don't, un, who don't know that there are other media outlets available besides mainstream news channels, right? They only watch MSNBC and CNN. They don't know what a podcast is. They don't know what a Substack is. They don't know that there are heterodox opinions and common sense uh, uh, you know, more centrist political ideas that are being uh, broadcasted into the ether. And so I hear what they're saying and I'm like, oh my God, 
these are things that I heard on my campus when I was a freshman and I thought that they were insane and that, oh, this could only be a Gen Z thing, you know, and this can only be a thing that we're reading and then recycling on Twitter. Um, but now it's my grandparents are saying it. And that can only be because the people who are mo at the forefront of these ideas, as I said before, multiple times, are graduating into institutions because the people who want this ideology to succeed are controlling these institutions and they are hiring them. Um, and that and 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 we are literally seeing the Democratic Party fold to this minority opinion. Um, and as a Democrat, as a liberal who wants to continue voting Democrats, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and I, I know that was a long, convoluted answer. There's lots of moving parts here, but um, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to spend for a second on terminology. Um, you know, already Sam, the issue, the the term critical race theory came up, and obviously that's been one that's. Um, dominated a lot of discussion about what it is and what it isn't and the like, whether we should use it in a certain way and not in a certain way. Um, there's also the, 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 the term woke, which we've all used. Um, it, some people regard it as a pejorative, and if they regard it as a pejorative, then, um, then they may turn off when it's used. Um, Thomas Chatterton-Williams, who's somebody who's been, uh, um, who's talked a lot about this, thinks we should retire the term. And he's somebody who's very supportive of the free expression of ideas. Um, and I've stopped using it as much. I'm trying in my more recent articles not to use it as much just because I don't want that to become the focal point. On the other hand, I'm extremely concerned that if every time somebody that doesn't like these terms pipes in and lets us know that the term has now been problematized, that we won't have any way of talking about this ideology. So Sam, why don't you start? What, what's, what are your thoughts about uh, terminology? That's a good question. It's a, it's a tough question. I, I would uh, refer you to uh, John McCorder, who has been writing about this very heavily. Uh, he's a friend at uh, Columbia and also my AI colleague, uh, Thomas Chatterson Williams, has also been writing quite a bit about all of this. Um, you know, one strategy is to create, the, to use the word problematize. It's a, it's a, that also is a word I find strange, but, uh, you know, people want to co-opt terms as quickly as possible to sort of shut them down. <clears throat> the issue I have with the term woke is not actually if it's positive or negative. It has a negative con connotation. Of course it does. It was never intended to be positive. Uh, the issue is it's imprecise. Um, what does it really mean to be woke? What does this critical race theory really mean? And so on. Um, and, and what I would say is this stuff is in its nascency. This stuff has seemingly taken over um, fairly quickly. It actually hasn't. I mean, the, the rise of this left movement and these progressive impulses have been very insidious and very, you know, very much uh, in the planning and in the works for decades now. It started obviously on university campuses. Blake is absolutely right. These uh, ideas have now spread from college and university campuses where if you wanna hire certain types of people, you have to then toe the similar lines. Uh, so you see similar policies infecting law firms, uh, various banks and, and investment houses. Uh, you see this in, in tech now as well. But, uh, you know, they're, they're used in a very sloppy way to, to simply refer to this movement. And the problem is it's not even clear what this movement is. Defining terms is not is not great. It's sort of been um, let's attack, let's scare people into silence and let's, you know, and let's keep them quiet. That's what this uh, has been so I, I don't really want to try to define woke or even what these progressive ideas are other than to say that they're deliberately divisive deliberately intended to intimidate 
and very thoughtfully used to intimidate and to promote silence, which is really what it is of, of people who disagree. Like, you know, um, you know, this is how the tyranny of the minority works. Uh, I can tell you as a professor, uh, one thing most professors know is whoever the loudest individual is in the room and whoever the most woke, to use that term inappropriately again, is in the room will dominate the classroom and the classroom conversation. Whoever is teaching that class has to now teach to that person. That's a problem. And that that is uh, hijacking, if you will, uh, the discourse and the ability of the teacher to teach. Um, the problem is uh, because of social media, uh, because it's easy to record someone and because it's easy to share this quickly and because mobs can form within minutes, uh, you know, we are now facing a just a mass silencing because if you offend the wrong person or seemingly upset the wrong person, uh, people will call for your dismissal within within minutes and we're seeing it left and right. Uh, so the terms need to be refined. Uh, definitely that we need to be more precise. But uh, right now, you know, we're sort of in, I, I still think we're in this sort of uh, mob mentality phase. So, uh, you know, I don't know, but I would definitely refer you to John McWhorter, who, who as a linguist spends an inordinate amount of time trying to define this very clearly. Mm. Yeah. Blake, what do you think? So um, I tend to use the word woke um, just because I found that it's easy and a lot of people know what I'm speaking of when I do say it. But I think it's correct that I think it's a correct uh, choice to phase out using it. And the reason why is I actually blame the right more than I blame the left for this. Um, I could actually define wokeism um, as sort of the restructure, the, 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 the regrouping of American the American body politic into racial categories. And as Sam said, the demonization and the vilification and the silencing of anyone who objects to this. So it's the reorganizing of our politics into racial categories. Um, when I believe as a liberal that the, that the best uh, course of action for a more freer, more fairer society is to uh, not do that, is to uh, uh, not separate our politics and our interests into racial categories and into hierarchical categories. Um, and so that's wokeism to me. Um, there, are, there, are, there are things that are woke, and I use that term with negative connotations. Um, you know, I think an example of that would be, uh, you know, the latest renditions of the pride flag. Um, or companies going out of their way to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether that be, I don't know, JP Morgan or a, a branch of the United States military, which I guess is not a company, but an institution. Um, it could be, uh, you know, universities who are now terrified that their students uh, who are attending uh, classes on their campus are going to say something bad about the organization online. And so they, you know, trip over themselves every day to release statements on X, Y, and Z um, and, 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 and make sure that their campuses are wrapped in enough bubble wraps that nobody is offended or nobody is uh, shocked by any information or dissenting opinion with trigger warnings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all woke things. What is not woke is saying uh, it should be easier for black people in rural areas of this country to vote. You know, there is a, a disparity between uh, mater maternity uh, mortality between black women and white women. Um, there are too, there, there's too much prevalence of diabetes in Native American communities. Um, you know, there are Leg there's legislation uh, on the books that makes healthcare harder for certain communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pointing out actual injustices in this country that lead to disparate outcomes 
Um, and I'm, I use that very clearly because I, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely not a Kendiist, but um, that is not woke. That is progressive, you know, saying that there are certain laws, there are certain practices in this country that are unfair and that might have some uh, racism and prejudice cooked into them. That is not woke. What the Republican Party has done is attached racial, racial resentment politics to that word. So anytime anybody, they say the word woke, it has become a dog whistle to the most, I believe, vile and uh, repugnant ideologies and voters in this country. Um, and so that's why I don't like using it anymore because they've turned it into something that it's not. It is a actually a, important intellectual academic conversation that we should be having about illiberalism on the left, but it has just been turned into and weaponized into a broad brush to paint over anybody talking about race, anybody talking about issues of identity, anybody talking about, uh, it, like like someone called the, the Build Back Better plan woke. You know, the Republicans are calling Build Back Better woke and, uh, you know, the, the, the infrastructure bill woke, you know, and it's like, okay, so this has just been you know, this, this word has just lost all meaning, apparently. It's like the left, how they use the word Nazi. It's like, I guess this word has just completely lost all meaning. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, a, it's it's annoying that we have to find a new word because I think it was simple. And I think people within these spaces knew what we were talking about when we said it um, and knew we weren't coming from some place of, you know, from like a identitarian reactionary right wing place. We were actually discussing um, a phenomenon that has a chilling effect on free speech. Um, but you know, I guess that's just, uh, I, I expect nothing better of the Republican Party. So here we are. Sam, do you want to answer that? Not really. I thought that was uh, <laughs> very articulate and, and, you know, it was okay. all over the place, not in a bad way. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's fine. I, I, I do think that, um, you know, the, the, the one thing I, I would say is um, what you described as progressive policies. I may not even call it progressive. I may just call it the truth policies that are biased are biased. Simple as that. Yes. If, if, if there is, uh, if there, the outcomes are disparate based on policy, we have, we, you know, left or right, we have to question how efficacious it is and how fair and just it is. And if it's doing our ultimate goal, which is to raise everybody up. So I would just say that, you know, some of it, I would say it's more truth than progressive or, or conservative. It's just, if, if there are creating outcomes that are not appropriate, we need to address that period, life, mm -hmm. left or right. Um, this always shocks my students when I tell them, uh, you, you know, use such terminology. But, you know, if, if, if a policy is creating systematic bias and harm, we need to address it. It's not period. It doesn't matter, you know, geography, race, urban, rural, whatever. We have to address it because it's unjust and that's not what we do. Fantastic. So I want to I want to go back uh, we've, um, into sort of the meat of the topic on anti-Semitism and so forth. So I want to start with a case study. Um, that is the California Ethnic Studies curriculum. Um, I know you're both familiar with this. Um, the uh, California um, government, both the State Department of Education and later the legislature, um, endorsed a curriculum that was certainly based on sort of a critical race ideological framework, right? Um, and it left Jewish organizations in the mainstream with a very tough dilemma. And, and they actually broke um, differently on this. Um, the, the dilemma was, should we try to get the best representation of the Jewish narrative in this curriculum as we possibly can, but in so doing, leave the ideological, the ideological framework alone and let it continue to have that sort of oppressed versus presser binary? 
Um, or should we oppose the entire framework as problematic because that in itself will lead to anti-Semitism and liberal ideology? Um, and so some groups like the JCRC of San Francisco support uh, was successful in getting some you know, the Jewish narrative in this uh, in this framework in this curriculum, and others opposed it. Um, groups like the American Jewish Committee ultimately supposed, uh, opposed it. Where do you come down on this dilemma? I'm going to start, Blake. Sure. Um, so this was a, uh, I guess, a flashpoint on the internet um, <laughs> a couple months ago. I uh, disagreed with many people on where they fell on the uh, ethnic studies model curriculum in California. Um, because a lot of Jews were on the side of, no, we're included now, everything's great, you know, and if you oppose this still while we're included within this curriculum, then you must be racist, uh, and then you must be some reactionary right-winger um, who doesn't want kids learning about racism and ethnic uh, groups in the classroom, which was just completely untrue. Um, and and to, to explain how it's untrue, we have to look at what was included about the Jewish story. What was the only way that they could perceive of Jews so that they could allow us into this narrative. And it was sort of what they did with the model curriculum is they sort of built these barriers between different ethnic subsets of Jews between Mizrahim, between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And they went on to say, you know, Mizrahim experienced discrimination in, in Israel um, and, and there's a power dynamic between Jews who pass as white and Jews who are not white, which one can make the argument is true. Obviously, you know, there was the, you know, Israeli Black Panther movement. And there was, of course, discrimination against uh, Mizrahim by the Ashkenazi establishment in Israel. But again, Jews don't really fit into a perfect binary between who in our community is more oppressed versus who is more privileged. Ashkenazim, you know, had to go through millennia of pogroms and then a Shoah. Um, and and Ashkenazim in Europe are still experiencing anti-Semitism. And while Sephardim and Mizrahim, those identities don't really uh, con converge well or and they blend into each other a lot. And there's a lot of different experiences there. Um, and so what what we saw from the ESMC was a trying to install the American left's idea of race and racial groups and hierarchy onto the Jewish community. Right drawing lines in between Jews of color, Jews not of color, um, Jews who have this experience, Jews who have another experience. And that's never been what the Jewish community has been about. We've been about, we are one people, we are Am Yisrael, we are a nation. We, we don't, you know, fall into victim politics. We rebuild. That's the essence of Zionism. We, we, we are one people uh, with different customs, but a shared narrative and a shared culture all around the world. Um, and so I think it's a losing battle um, and I also think it, it creates unnecessary division within our own community um, to try to fit us into this into this curriculum. Um, the other thing is that um, the, the people who wrote the first draft were not happy, right, that the Jewish story was included. And we have to ask ourselves, OK, so if the people who wrote the first draft are not happy about the Jewish story being included, what does that say about the ideology behind the first draft, much of which is still present in the third or fourth draft? You know, why is it 
that we were excluded in the first place? What is the thinking that went into this worldview that went into this specific ideology? And that's what I, you know, I have to, I say to Jews and Jewish organizations who want to, you know, make diversity, equity, and inclusion departments on the college campus more, you know, active about addressing anti-Semitism. Well, why wasn't this, why weren't they addressing anti-Semitism in the first place? There's, there's a reason why it's because this ideology is, is a liberal and, liberalism and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. You know, it, it, we, we can't just expect systems that were meant to exclude Jews to include Jews, then everything's going to be fine. Mm. Sam. That was well said. Um, <laughs> it's very well said, and it's, it's hard for me to chime in uh, beyond that, other than to say that as a professor, the thing that I care about is the framework, not the substance. Uh, you get the framework right, the substance follows. Um, that's what we care about when we think about university planning and, and so on. I, I think one of the um, issues that, that you know, that uh, Blake didn't touch on, and it's, it's certainly not a problem. I think, Blake, your answer was incredibly articulate, thoughtful, and I, I love how you hooked it all in together. So there isn't much to add that way, is uh, to just mention who, who, who are the people setting this all up? And, and some research that I, I recently uh, have done, you know, shed some light onto this. And what it is, is these are master's degree level teachers, master's degree holding administrators. And if you look, they all come from the same schools. Basically, where did the, you know, if we want to understand the source, which is not answering your question directly, David, but I think is just an important no, thing sorry. for all the listeners and participants to understand is that all of these ideas, this illiberalism, this anti-Semitism has come out of education schools. The ed schools around our country, and you know, we've known this for a long time, look at the curriculum. But what I was able to do was I did this mega deep dive empirically uh, with the folks at, the, at FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. And we basically looked at the backgrounds of thousands of these administrators. And they all are trained in the same sort of way. So they're all being fed the same dogma. It is no longer uh, you know, a situation where they're taught to be thinkers. They're trained to be activists. And that's a very important difference. If you take a look at administrators today, uh, and even a lot of faculty, you are not teachers and scholars, you are scholar activists, with activism being the primary uh, issue. If you look at, you know, various historians, various uh, disciplines like, uh, you know, gender studies, women's studies, and, and even things like anthropology, it's about correcting the, the past wrongs. So when you turn over a curriculum in California to either professors who are activists or to various officials who do curricular planning, who are all graduates of the same handful of ed schools where they are taught this illiberal dogma and then are told to go out and you know implement it we have pro we, we have some trouble to me we need to take this stuff down this is where we need to really push back this insidious growth has to stop we have to have a fair framework and once a fair framework that's actually actually liberal actually open actually tolerant then the appropriate story about the jewish community the jewish people can be told in conjunction with all the other legitimate stories that need to be told. Um, yeah. But if we do that, we're, we're going to have a lot of trouble. And to me, that's uh, that's where you know I think we need to focus a lot more of our attention. I'm not saying that we shouldn't push back on the status quo. I'm not saying we shouldn't provide more education. But we need to look also at what the root causes are and how to stop it. And uh, that would be you know stopping the administrators, looking at these curricula around the country, and stop giving them the power to make these decisions. Hmm. I'd also commend, by the way, the, the writing of Lyle Asher, Professor Lyle Asher. He wrote an article in both Quillette and I think it was also in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, he's written about how ed schools are continuing to churn out these university administrators 
um, and, and teachers who are um, who are then promulgating this as ideology. And by the way, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this is finding its way into Jewish day schools as well. And we've done some research on that and found that many pluralistic day schools are now embracing this DEI framework as if it's dogma, not as if it's one way of looking at the world, but instilling it in, in a generation of young people. Um, and to me, that's highly problematic. That's going to make it much more difficult to fight it when, when the obvious manifestations of anti-Semitism are apparent to everyone. Um, so, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about how this framework, this ideology generates anti-Semitism. And I'm, I'm wondering if there are other ways of, of other ways it does manifest. I, Blake, you talked a little bit about erasure and how Jews become erased in this framework. Um, I've, I've also suspicious of this concept of equity and how it might play out. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of that as well. The Ibrahim X. Kendi view of equity is that um, that any disparity among groups is prima facie evidence of discrimination and oppression. And so that means that a group that's um, that is sort of under the mean is being discriminated against and that that's those groups that are over the mean are benefiting from white supremacy and oppression and that can then implicate Jews and Asians in particular. Do you have any thoughts about how this plays out? It could be around the concept of equity. Is that a real fear or is it something that, you know, people like me are overplaying? What do you think? We'll start with you, Blake. I, I think it's just the same poison that we've been talking about for a while and this entire call. And I think it's just the same flawed worldview um, that people who have power, and I will talk about the Jews, there is no, I hope we have no misunderstandings that the last 50 years of Jewish history have been uh, the exception, not the rule to our existences. Um, we suddenly find ourselves with an army. We suddenly find ourselves with a pretty secure, I know, you know, there are troubling statistics and anti-Semitism is of course on the rise, but we find ourselves with a pretty secure, comfortable place, at, at least, you know, before, I believe before 2015, 2016, um, in, in, in American culture and, and contributing to American life. Um, and so this worldview says that anybody who has power is benefiting off a system that is robbing power of people who do not have power. Um, that is just empirically false. I mean, there's so, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense whether it be applied to Jewish people or Asian people. I read a tweet this morning that said like, Jews, even if they don't know it, are passively uh, contributing to whiteness or are passively acting, acting uh, under the shadow of whiteness. Um, and when I look at the Jewish story, what I, what I see is the story of resiliency. I see a story of building ourselves from the ground up, taking advantage of the American dream. Um, um, yes, you know, we had an easier time taking advantage of the American dream than other groups. Um, but, but it really is a success story, um, not just here, but around the world of how one tiny people manage their way into a position where you're no longer, uh, you know, so vulnerable and attacked uh, as we were in the last century or many centuries ago. Um, and that has in, 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 in an era where marginalization is celebrated um, and victimhood is celebrated, that story is maligned. 
Um, you know, Anat Wilf, who who was a former member of the Knesset, um, she's a very big, uh, important thought leader on Israel and Zionism, always says, you know, Zionism was a progressive movement that had the misfortune of succeeding. Because once it was, one, you know, when, when the Jews wanted a state, it was a a progressive march forward to liberate a persecuted minority. And then we got our state and then suddenly we're on the wrong side of history. Um, I feel like that's a catch 22. That's an impossible uh, conundrum to work yourself out of because I refuse to, you know, be comfortable uh, in, in the progressive worldview and persecuted because I don't have a state. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to give that up so I can appeal to whatever the postmodern moment we're living in right now is. Um and at the same time, you know, I'm uncomfortable sometimes with Jewish power and with with what we choose to do uh, with our newfound authority. Um, so I just feel like it's it's a really sloppy way of looking at the world. Um, it puts us in an impossible situation where we have to choose between defending ourselves and and being weak. Um, and I, I just, it's problematic for those reasons and everything we've already discussed on the call. Sam, what what do you think of this? concept and how it's playing out and anything that you want to comment that Blake just said. One one thing that uh, my colleagues at AI and I have talked about now is uh, we often question, and this is a thought experiment only, is something along the lines of, has the American experiment almost been too successful in, in, in some regards? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is the American ideology? What do we value collectively? And because we've been so good at integrating so many people for so many years, um, you know, certain races, ethnicities, legacies, histories, you know, have faded away a little bit. We don't really think about, uh, you know, so just to, to Blake, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Jews have had an easy time. I don't know if we could empirically measure that. It's hard to say how easy the Jewish community has uh, had it. But, you know, if you think about uh, Jews in Germany, it wasn't all that easy, obviously. Uh, if we think about Jews in America, excuse me, Germans in America today, we don't even know uh, or think all that much about the German community. Sure, we think about Oktoberfest for a week here and there, but uh, the German community has been so effective at integrating into the larger uh, community and into the American fabric. Uh, we forget brands like Kohler or German. We forget just how potent uh, the, the German legacy is in creating our, our, our fabric today. Uh, so a lot of people are wondering, is, is the issue that say the so-called powerful white majority, which is not even clear what that is, uh, you know, should we have a renaissance, if you will, of uh, various uh, ethnic and, and, and nationality groups there? Um, you know, I have a colleague who writes about, well, maybe we should, uh, he's of Irish uh, ethnicity, maybe he should be more Irish. Uh, you know, I may be Jewish, but I'm ethnically Hungarian. I've, of late, I've been uh, cooking Hungarian food in honor of my uh, grandmother who passed away, uh, and I'm, I'm loving understanding what that really means. Um, so, you know, we're at this weird moment in time where we have to ask, you know, are we rejecting the American dream by balkanizing ourselves in these categories? Um, and how healthy is that? Because up until now, everyone tried to to move on. I think about my grandfather, who uh, or great grandfather, who I didn't know. And uh, but what I was told repeatedly by my grandparents was that he worked as fast as he could to get rid of his accent. He didn't want to, you know, he didn't want handouts. He didn't want to help. He wanted to be American as fast as humanly possible. Never mentioned where he was from. It wasn't that he was embarrassed, but he's here. He wants to be American. Now it's all about, you know, embracing difference. Uh, and I think that's good. I think you can do both. But now we're embracing difference to uh, to a fault where we're now fracturing ourselves. Uh, and I and I, I think about that in, in larger terms and, and wonder, 
you know, can we find common ground? If you look at what various parties and political leaders are saying, <clears throat> in particular, if you look even at the Democratic Party, it's hard to find unifying themes there. I don't say this to be negative. I say this is someone who's looking for some form of unifying set of messages of how we bring people together. So, um, yeah, I just I'm, I'm regularly thinking about is there a way to unify? And when we bring up identity uh, and identity so strongly today, uh, it's at the expense of unity and it's at the expense of American values and the American experiment. So I'm going to ask a tough question. It'll be the last one. Um, <clears throat> part of this current discourse is the this idea that's sometimes called standpoint epistemology. It's this idea that people's lived experience qualifies them morally and intellectually to have insight into society in the way that you know the dominant class might, and to say to define the oppression against them. So we 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 say that. Uh, that Black Americans can are qualified to talk about oppression, and that that they should be able to define that. Now, obviously, Black Americans are as diverse as anybody else on on a lot of these issues, but um, but there is a school of thought there, and that that's part uh, that empowers this discourse that that people who are white or who are not oppressed don't get to have a say in um, in how the this plays out in society. Yet we Jews sometimes use that as well. We like to say we can define anti-Semitism. For society, and we support the Iowa definition on anti-Semitism. Aren't we, in a sense, using that same when we do that, using that that same sort of standpoint of positionality ourselves that we are now critiquing? I'll start with you, Blake. What do you think? So, um, I it's so interesting because again, th this comes back to the loudest voices in the room. Um, being given a lot more credit and a lot more uh, credence, I guess, than they should. Um, but first I will say like, to your point about like how insidious this problem is. And I've talked about this on, I think multiple panels with, with, with JI, with JILV um, is, you know, the democratic socialists of America uh, on college campuses adoption of this thing called progressive stack, which is in a meeting. Uh, it could be about any topic, any subject, any political policy that, you know, is currently uh on the table and who gets to speak first, who is called on to share their thoughts first, depends entirely on how marginalized they are based on their immutable characteristics. So if you're, you know, a, you know, trans handicapped uh, person of color, you get to the front of the line and it doesn't matter how ex, you know, expert you could be on this particular subject, let's say it's on housing and urban development, and you were a, you know, a, you have a PhD in, in, in urban development and in city planning. Um, and if you have characteristics that are more, uh, that are more lumped into the privilege category, you don't get to talk, you are pushed back, which is a, you know, a kind of a microcosm of the larger illiberal moment we're having right now. It's sort of a silly thing that some chapters do, but I think it's actually obviously very reflective of where the cultural conversation is. Um, to answer your question more specifically, I don't think it's wrong that groups uh, get to define um, their experiences and get to define what their oppression looks like. Um, the problem is there's an asymmetry between uh, Jews doing that um, because the majority of Jews, the vast majority of Jews do believe in the tenets of IHRA. You know, I think it's like something like 90% of Jews think that saying that Israel has no right to exist is anti-Semitic. Um, Jews are pretty good and, and we should be given the opportunity to say 
what counts as hostility toward us and what doesn't. And so we can play that identity card. Um, uh, black people absolutely, and, and people of color in general, absolutely have the right and have the you know authority to describe what is uh, what oppression against them looks like. The only problem is in those communities, it's the minority opinion that is being portrayed as the majority opinion. And to see a microcosm, uh, to, not a microcosm, to see an illustration of that, you have to look at how people of color vote in this country, you know, or more specifically the New York mayor election, where the vast, vast, vast majority of working class people of color in this country voted for Eric Adams. Now, if you read the, uh, who is a former Republican cop, right, who is moderate on a lot of social issues um, and who, you know, has kind of a stark contrast to the more uh, white elite policies of Bill de Blasio. Okay, but if you read, if you only read the New York Times or the Washington Post or, and you're only following left-wing pundits on Twitter, you would fall under the assumption that the majority of Black people in this country think that uh, the police in general is a racist institution and that things like microaggressions are 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 race are, are, are a pressing like very urgent problem that need to be tackled on campus in front of everything else um and that you know we have to say words like latinx of course there was a, a i think a study published yesterday that actually might be doing more harm than good uh with latino voters in regards to their allegiance to the democratic party um and so it's, it's a false equivalence you know i i actually uh Black voters in South Carolina single-handedly handed the nomination over to Joe Biden instead of Bernie Sanders. That is where people of color are in this country. They are more conservative than the minority uh, loudest voices in the room who are being like given a pedestal, of course, by white, very well-off liberal elites. Um, that is not how the majority of, of that population thinks, understands things. And of course, you know, John McWhorter is very uh, vocal about this and he talks, he's been speaking about this a lot lately. Um, and so it kind of all wraps into the same thing, but overall to answer your question, yes, we do, we, we do have the power to define animosity against us and to describe as characteristics and to pull the identity card there. Um, we just have to make sure that we're listening to what the majority of what X group is actually saying. What do you think, Sam? So a um, lot to say about that. Um, in the interest of time, uh, you know, I, I think Blake, uh, again, gets most of it quite right. I, I think the issue is that, you know, obviously groups can have the right and should have the right to define certain terms. Uh, the problem is, again, when you have the loudest voice in the room uh, speak up and it's, it's often incorrect. The thing that bothers me is go to, you know, when college and universities resume some sense of normalcy and we have speakers again and big auditorium and uh, you know, on auditoriums again, um, before questions are asked, just wait till the person gets up to the mic and defines uh, him or herself or their self, whatever it may be. And it's not just going to be, I'm a, you know, as a black person, as a Jewish person, as this person, as that person, as the other person, they will use five or six categories. And in doing that, make any form of cohesive statement almost impossible. It becomes so unique, such a snowflake, that <laughs> there's no way, and this is the problem, there is no possible way you can undermine what they're saying or, or challenge them because their lived experience is not possibly replicated by anyone else in the room. I actually disagree. I think these things are probably very replicable, especially at places like Sarah Lawrence or, 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 or GW or NYU or something like that. But that being said, it's, it's sort of finding the, some middle ground where, yes, I agree, you know, Jews should be able to define what is anti-Semitic. Folks who are of color should be able to define that. 
but at the same time, it goes too far in, in many cases. And it's often people with an ax to grind with a very clear, um, you know, extreme position who's going to let the world know that this position is extreme and their experience is more legitimate than everyone else in the room. So it's finding that middle ground because Jews should be able to decide what's anti-Semitic. But just because there's one person uh, on a college campus or in a, in a lecture who decides to take a far more extreme position doesn't mean that that truth or that person's lived truth is more legitimate than my lived truth or anyone else uh, who's Jewish's lived truth uh, may be. So um, it, it's, it's a tough call, but uh, you know, it, it's accepting that groups do have certain rights, but then not going too far with those rights and, and allowing these um, individuals, again, this is tyranny of the minority, these, you know, one-off voices to just pound home ideas that may not be representative, fair, or equitable. Fantastic. Well, that, that broke some new ground. I don't think I've ever had a public conversation on, on that that linked these two ideas of defining anti-Semitism um, for the public and, and some of the critiques that we have of the way racism is often uh, talked about. So I think that that was a unique uh, exchange and I'm glad we had it. And I'm glad to have both of you who bring such fascinating dynamics. One, a recent uh, um, student, one, a, a professor who interacts with students. I think that was also very rich and, and, um, and great for people to hear about. So thank you both for being with us and um, Look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank Thanks you for so having us. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Sam, I really appreciate it. Sorry about some of the logistical... It's, no, 